the field that this ain't exactly real Or it's real but it ain't exactly there From the war against disorder From the sirens night and day From the fires of the homeless From the ashes of the gay Democracy is coming Welcome to Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99% for February 17th, 2024. Our intro music, as always, is Leonard Cohen's Democracy. Um, you are listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown, full-powered Missoula Community Radio, live streaming on 101.5 KFGM no punctuation, .org, and available on podcast at anchor.fm forward slash VOP hyphen Montana or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People, Radio Byron for the 99%. I am Jim the Soundman, joined today by 
Sue Kirchmeyer and Mark Anderling, who are both in Missoula. Hey, Jim. Hey, Sue. Hi, you guys. Now, we, we broadcast from the new public library in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. We are 66% of which recording this show from the comfort of our own homes, which are located in the stolen homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. Jim is at the Con Possible Convention in Atlanta, GA right now, which is home of the Muscogee and Cherokee people. All right. Our show, Voice of the People, seeks to give local, state, national, and international news and perspectives on that news that you rarely hear from the corporate news media. We cite our sources and try our best to follow good journalistic ethics. Our bias is to inform and educate the 99%, the working class, in Montana, so we can build our power to establish political and economic democracy. That said, as always, we want to give old Mick a shout out. Hey, Mick, hope you're enjoying the sunshine. Bye, Mick. That goes for all of us, Mick. Enjoy the sunshine. All right. Well, we have a good show today, I think. Um, our word of the week is empire. And we also cover some stories in the ongoing genocide in Gaza. And we talk about Putin's interview with Tucker Carlson and the prison death of Russian dissident Alexei Navalny. Then we examine the special counsel, special counsel's report of whether President Biden should be prosecuted for his possession of classified military documents in his garage, as Jim said, next to his Corvette. Um, and then we visit Pakistan, where the Pakistani people have apparently foiled their military's attempt to rig their national elections. Perhaps a lesson we can all learn from. And lastly, we talk about the latest U.S. Postal Service Board of Governors neoliberal plans to take mail sorting out of Missoula and move it over two mountain passes 200 miles west to Spokane. That's a whole lot for your community radio dollar, eh, Jim? It certainly is. I look forward to listening. And participating. <laughs> <laughs> so, as we've said before, we are using the word empire as the word of the week this week. Uh, before we get too far into the weeds, what do we mean by empire? Well, as listeners know, we like to sometimes use Wikipedia as a reference for our words of the week. As we use Wikipedia, we do so with our eyes open, and we include this note about Wikipedia. Each entry is written by the public with citations provided for sources of information, so the accuracy of each entry may vary somewhat. And as reporters Ben Norton and Max Blumenthal wrote in a June 11, 2020 article in The Gray Zone, quote, Wikipedia has become a bulletin board for corporate and imperial interests under the watch of its Ian Randian founder, Jimmy Wales, and the veteran U.S. regime change operative who heads the Wikimedia Foundation, Catherine Mayer. In other words, uh, Wikimedia is capable and, uh, of spreading disinformation itself. That said, according to Wikipedia, quote, an empire is an aggregate of many separate states or territories under a supreme ruler or oligarchy. This is in contrast to a federation, which is an extensive state voluntarily composed of autonomous states and peoples. Oh, that's nice and simple. So an empire is an 
involuntary rule of a collection of nations and peoples, whereas the Federation is a voluntary rule of a collection of nations and peoples. Kind of like the Articles of Confederation back in our own history. That's good, Jim. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that if you don't mind. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. just like the stolen land in that, the that, Bitterroot Valley that we broadcast. From. That's it. I'm 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 on an imperial uh, march right now. Um, again, uh, from Wikipedia, oh. an empire is a large polity which rules over territories outside of its original borders. Definitions of what physically and politically constitutes an empire vary. It might be a state affecting imperial policies or a particular political structure. Empires are typically formed from diverse ethnic, national, cultural, and religious components. Empire and colonialism are used to refer to relationships between a powerful state or society versus a less powerful one. Michael W. Doyle has defined empire as, quote, effective control, whether formal or informal, of a subordinated society by an imperial society, end quote. Tom Nairn and Paul James defines empires as polities that, quote, extend relations of power across territorial spaces over which they have no prior or given legal sovereignty, and where, in one or more of the domains of economics, politics, and culture, they gain some measure of extensive hegemony over those spaces to extract or accrue value. Boy, end quote. Yeah, That's so, a mouthful. <laughs> so, so Name and James are saying... Um, there's not equal flow back and forth between resources, <laughs> opportunities, and uh, political power. Absolutely correct. While there might be some benefit to the less powerful peoples, right? Oh, um, okay. But the more powerful, it's it's all about what benefits the more powerful, right? Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. which which is a story as old as humanity, right? <laughs> yeah, Germany, I think is an important word there too, because that's what that's what puts starts the clashes between spheres mm-hmm. of empires. Right, they need to get. Oh away. yeah, that's it. Oh, <laughs> yep. are we getting ahead of ourselves, Sue? Is it, did did you plant that seed before it's spring? Yeah, because that, that sounds like where we're going to end up going in this show. Mm-hmm. Mm. so that's the, the next drama thing. yeah it, 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 the plot unfolds absolutely so, uh, so military is not just military so empire excuse me is not just military occupation of others but a, as we explored in past shows it more effectively is using the powers of hegemony to rule over others that's that's right yes he, hegemonic powers include the military but today it also means and means more uh, economic, financial, political, and cultural powers to exert control. We need to say what he- hegemo- hegemony is. <laughs> yeah, it's it's domination of one over another using these different methods. Not it's not just holding a gun to your head, but um, if you if you're probably we covered this in a show before the. Um, the uh, 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 oh the yeah. uh, the Mon- international monetary fund or the world bank um, is a, an instrument of U.S. hegemonic control. Gotcha. People will say, "Oh, we're lo- we're giving all this money to all these countries. You know, when do we ever get money back from them?" Well, 
you know, <laughs> how it's working is that uh, the International Monetary Fund loans out dollars and really puts the government in debt. They have to pay that back. Mm -hmm. And so they've got to change their economy in order to create dollars to pay back this loan. And oftentimes right. it's what's that is not good for the people of that country. So well, yeah, absolutely. About hegemony that I was thinking about is the, if, if an empire thinks that it, it has to have hegemony, like in the world, then you're not capable of working with other powers because you think that you have to be at the top of the pyramid. There's no opportunity for mm -hmm. cooperation. It's our way or the highway. Right. And and that is, as we're going to get to real soon here, I think that's a unique situation uh, that we face in this world right now in world history, um, where, uh, you know, we have a hegemonic power that wants to be hegemon over the entire earth. There's never been an empire that has actually done that or tried to actually mm -hmm. do that. Not even the Third Reich. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, in all past empires, nobody was aware of the other hemisphere. Yeah, there you go. So it's a, so the so the game table is much big. It goes, yep, covers the whole globe. Now, um, thoughtful question here: Could could possibly the United States be an empire? <laughs> well. Um, you know, I'll answer it this way, Jim. Scholars in Wikipedia here uh, would give an emphatic yes to answer to answer that question. Um, so, quote, Chalmers Johnson uh, argues that the U.S. global network of hundreds of military bases already represents a global empire in its initial form. He says, for a major power, prosecution of any war that is not a defense of the homeland usually requires overseas military bases for strategic reasons. After the war is over, and see if this sounds familiar, especially in the Middle East, it is tempting for the victor to retain such bases and easy to find reasons to do so. Commonly, preparedness for a possi possible resumption of hostilities will be invoked over time, if a nation's aims becomes imperial, the bases form the skeleton of an empire, end quote. Um, likewise, Simon Dalby associates the network of bases with the Roman imperial system. He said, quote, looking at these impressive facilities, which reproduce substantial parts of American suburbia, complete with movie theaters and restaurant chains, the parallels with Roman garrison towns built on the Rhine or on Hadrian's Wall in England, where the remains are strikingly visible on the landscape, are obvious. Less visible is the sheer scale of the logistics to keep garrison troops and residents in the far-flung reaches of empire. That military presence literally builds the cultural logic of the garrison troops into the landscape, a permanent mm -hmm. reminder of imperial control, end quote. I, I thought that was uh, especially revealing uh, because if if you do go to any of these bases, they mm -hmm. recreate they totally recreate suburban America as much as they can. Oh yes, I'm familiar with military bases. They do their very best to create a familiar environment. Right. Usually, the way the streets are laid out. <laughs> yeah. Make it's it's um just like Disney World only in olive drab. 
and but as Dalby would say, it, it it has that's for the troops to mm -hmm. make them feel comfortable, but it also sets the example in that area, in that uh, foreign country where we have that base. Of uh, this is this is what we're trying to uh, give. You know, we're trying to promote this for you. Yeah, um, we're trying to civilize you, Bubba. That's it. That's it. Uh, Kenneth Pomerantz and Harvard historian Niall Ferguson share the above cited views, quote, with American military bases in over 120 countries, we have hardly seen the end of empire, end quote. The, this vast archipelago of U.S. military bases far exceeds 19th century British ambitions. British Imperium consisted of specific, albeit numerous, colonies and clients. The American imperial vision is much more global, end quote. Um, yeah, that it is. Because it, during, you know, during the, the expansion period following the age of discovery, when you had, uh, you know, every, every you know, nation <clears throat> in Europe that had an active merchant fleet, you know, they were, you know, they were bringing their brand to wherever they landed. And called right. home, and in uh, the United States is, let's use the word hegemon. <laughs> now that yeah. we know it, it yeah, certainly fits. Right, and and uh, I, I think it does fit too. Um, this is a, another quote from these guys: "Conventional maps of U.S. military deployments understate the extent of America's military reach. A Defense Department map of the world, which shows the areas of responsibility of the five major regional." Military command suggests that America's sphere of military influence is now literally global. The regional combatant commanders, the proconsuls of this imperium, have responsibility for swaths of territory beyond the wildest imaginings of their Roman predecessors. End quote. Yeah, um, absolutely. One of the most accepted distinctions between earlier empires and the American empire is the latter's global or planetary scope. French former foreign minister Hubert Verdrin wondered, quote, the situation is unprecedented. What previous empire subjugated the entire world, end quote. The quest for universal empire are old, but the present quest outdoes the previous in, quote, the notable respect of being the first to actually be global in its reach, end quote. Another historian, Paul Kennedy, who wrote prediction who wrote prediction talks of the imminent U.S. imperial overstretch in 2002, which I think we're definitely seeing today, mm -hmm. uh, acknowledged that about the present world system. He said, nothing has ever existed like this disparity of power. The Pax Britannica was run on the cheap. Napoleon's France and Philip II's Spain had powerful foes and were part of a multipolar multi system. Charlemagne's empire was merely Western European in stretch. The Roman Empire stretched further afield, but there was another great empire in Persia and a larger one in China. There is no comparison, end quote. In the last couple here, Walter Russell Mead observes that the United States attempts to repeat globally what the ancient empires of Egypt, China, and Rome had each accomplished on a regional basis. Professor Emeritus of Sociology at the University of Leeds, Zygmunt Bauman, concludes that due to its planetary dimension, the new empire cannot be drawn on a map. He said, the new empire is not an entity that could be drawn on a map. 
Drawing a map of the empire would also be a pointless exercise because the most conspicuous imperial trait of the new empire's mode of being consists in viewing and treating the whole of the planet as a potential grazing ground, end quote. And lastly, Time's Atlas of Empires numbers 70 empires in world history. Fareed Zakaria, a, a commentator, U.S. commentator, stressed one element not exceptional for the American empire, the concept of exceptionalism. <laughs> he said all dominant empires thought they were special, end quote. Mm -hmm. yeah, oh, yeah, I haven't heard. Go ahead. On I you, just... Sue. <laughs> oh, sorry, thanks. Sorry. We were just listening to a piece on alternative radio by, I can't remember her name, actually, she's got a tough name, um, about, well, nuclear war and environmental impacts. I didn't hear it all yet, but it was talking about the scope of what we're doing and the regions that we're establishing of the, the oceans and how we're... Mm -hmm preparing for climactic chaos and we'll be wanting to dominate everything rather than working in cooperation and that dominance is killing off the corals the whales that are oh yes the keystone to environmental mm. saving us etc cetera, etc cetera. that this whole attitude of hegemony and it's all you know our grazing field is uh we've got to be stopped <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's, that that raises another point. This this great hegemon, America, um, it, it has factions. It, it, to what extent is America uh, an integral part of the fossil fuel lobby? He's making decisions about the health and future of the planet that or how much of it is in, is enmeshed in, uh, you know, corporate agriculture, which is in. You know, taking biodiversity and turning it into two or three basic crops, you know, all yeah. kinds of things are they, they become global in scope because, um, you, you know, the U.S. hegemon is a wedding cake and it's <laughs> built up of layers. And and I, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm having, a, I'm trying to do this. I'm just trying to stay with you, Jim, on that one. I, Oh, the, the bride of Frankenstein, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's um, I, uh, to sum to sum it up, or I'll try to uh, sum it up. Um, is that uh, the, the aim, the 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 animating motive, right? In in, and I'm saying this in the most positive sense that there is for the U.S. Empire, for the U.S. exercising hegemony all across the world is to spread, admittedly, U.S.-centric forms of liberal democracy. That is the animating focus. And liberal democracy is a mix of free speech and electing our leaders. That's the good part. Uh, but also combined with undemocratic capitalism, that's the nasty part. And so, uh, yes. you know, this, this, is, this is what animates uh, the U.S. and the world, in my, my opinion. Understood. So... Okay. What's first in our current news today, Mark? Well, of course, it is still the likely genocide by Israel now happening in Gaza. Um, if listeners remember, we covered the defunding of the United Nations Palestinian Refugee Agency, UNRWA, after allegations emerged from Israel 
that around 12 of its tens of thousands of Palestinian employees were suspected of involvement in the October 7th attack, attacks in Israel by Hamas. The evidence for such allegations from a February 6th story in the Daily Beast, quote, an Israeli intelligence dossier spelling out allegations that a dozen staffers of the United Nations top agency in Gaza participated in the October 7th attacks includes little evidence to back up those claims, according to a copy obtained by the Daily Beast. The six-page dossier, which of course doesn't have any evidence in it, uh, being that short, um, the six-page dossier, a summary of a larger report which has not been given to the United Nations as of press time, names 12 employees of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, that's got to get your lips moving on that one, and describes their alleged ties to Hamas. Nine are accused of crossing the border on October 7th to take part in raids on Israeli communities, including one man, a school counselor, who is accused of kidnapping a woman. Citing intelligence information, documents, and identity cards seized during the course of the fighting, the dossier also claims that around 190 UNRWA employees are terrorist operatives working for Hamas or affiliate group Palestine Islamic Jihad. It does not go into further detail on the exact nature of the alleged information, documents, or identity cards. Leaked copies of the dossier began circulating last week with few of the first media outlets to report on its contact, contents acknowledging its lack of hard intelligence. There were some exceptions like CBS News, which noted that the claims were laid out without providing evidence. And, and evidence has to be brought forth in something like this. Even before the leaks, however, the accusations have thrown the agency's future into doubt. In the days since the United Nations revealed Israel's accusations, at least 18 donor countries, including the United States, have elected to suspend vital aid to the agency, which employs roughly 13,000 people in Gaza to run schools, operate healthcare centers, and oversee the distribution of food and medical aid. The New York Times reported Monday that it is set to lose $65 million by the end of the month, February this month, a loss that could incur disastrous results. UNRWA head Philippe Lazzarini said in a statement on Saturday, quote, our humanitarian operation on which 2 million people depend as a lifeline in Gaza is collapsing, end quote. The U.S. and other countries that have suspended aid have indicated they will not re reverse course until the investigation is concluded. UN sources indicated to France 24, uh, Channel France 24, that the investigation, particularly in the middle of an active war zone, could take up to a year. Lazzarini asked the Financial Times, which also expressed doubts about the strength of the dossier's claim in a Monday story, what would happen if the agency would disappear, even beyond the current crisis? Even if UNRWA disappears, the refugee status remains. Politically, these people still keep their refugee status. It will not go away because UNRWA is going, end quote. It was not immediately clear if the full report had been shared with Israel's allies, but its, claim, its claims were called, quote, highly, highly credible by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken last week. At that press conference, Blinken acknowledged that the U.S. hadn't quote, had the ability to investigate, end quote, the claims independently. 
in the face of some $440 million in aid drying up, some countries have doubled down on their commitment to Gaza. The Norwegian government has refused to halt donations, with Foreign Minister Espen Barth Eide telling National Public Radio last week that it would be tantamount to collective punishment. Though Norway was as shocked and appalled as anyone by Israel's claim, Barth Eide said, cutting funds now is really the wrong moment because we're talking about millions of people in extreme humanitarian distress, end quote. Other countries like Portugal and Spain have also indicated that they will continue to back UNRWA, with Spanish Foreign Minister Jose Manuel Albares telling lawmakers on Monday that they would send the agency an additional $3.7 million in aid, end quote. Disgusting. Absolutely. It's, uh, well, we don't have time to do a diagnosis of the patient, so we'll just wait and do an autopsy. Right. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So at least Norway and Spain are sending more money to keep UNRWA afloat. And Portugal... And there are other nations refusing to arm Israel, question mark? Yes. Um, and according to a February 15th report in Al Jazeera, quote, the United States Senate has approved a bill committing $14 billion to support Israel's war on Gaza this week, which, by the way, had the vote of both Montana's Democratic and Republican senators. Um, hmm. Even before the start of... This is back to Al Jazeera. Even before the start of the war last October, the U.S. firmly supported Israel with the supply of military equipment, contributing $3 billion annually in military aid. According to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute's Arms Transfers Database, 68% of Israel's weapon imports between 2013 and 2022 came from the U.S., the U.S. military also stockpiles weapons on the ground in Israel, presumably for use by the U.S. Army itself. However, the U.S. has allowed Israel to make use of some of these su supplies during the Gaza war. Besides the U.S., Israel also receives military imports from other nations. Weapons imported from Germany make up 28% of Israel's military imports. So really, it's the U.S. and Germany are the two, by far the two biggest. Mm -hmm. um, the United Kingdom has licensed at least 474 million pounds or almost $600 million in military exports to Israel since 2015, Human Rights Watch reported in December 2023. In Canada, Michael Buckert, Vice President of Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East, said Canadian companies have exported over $84 million um, U.S. dollars in military goods to Israel since 2015, adding that the government has continued to approve arms exports since the start of the war. In Australia, according to the Australian Greens Party defense spokesperson David Shoebridge, quote, the country has one of the most secretive weapons export systems in the world. Amnesty International has also called on Australia to halt arms sales to Israel and claims the country has approved 322 defense exports to Israel over the past six years. And lastly, uh, in France, a pro-Palestine demonstration on February 7th called on French companies, including Dassault Aviation, to stop selling arms to Israel. 
end quote. And that those are the principal arms armor armorers of Israel. Yeah, just as you would expect. Yes. Well, it's so small. I mean, if you look at the amount that we're sending over in billions of dollars, and and you look at the others, at least I was struck that there's like they're there's hardly. I mean, they're. They just don't compare to the amount that we're doing. No, yeah, we're we're two thirds easily of on our hands. That's absolutely right, absolutely right. Um, so, but so, so how about so the go ahead? Problem? Was now that we know who the malefactors are, who are left on the list of a hundred percent? Well, so the, these are these are countries that had given arms to Israel, but are. Are refusing to do so now, um, and according this is again according to the February fifteenth uh, Al Jazeera report, uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, Japan, Italy, and Spain have stopped delivering arms to Israel. Uh, and what is really interesting about um, in each of these countries halting weapon sales to Israel is. The International Court of Justice's interim ruling that Israel is likely committing genocide was cited by each of these countries as a principal reason for stopping. And so uh, people say, well, the International Court of Justice doesn't have any impact. Well, right there, mm -hmm. uh, these countries are afraid that they will be also be charged with aiding and abetting genocide and have stopped providing arms. Um, and okay. but, yep. That's okay, so you, you think that contributes that they, they in, don't in, want to be on the wrong side of a binding decision in every public anyway. statement about in each of those right. countries saying that they don't want they're stopping. They cited the International Court of Justice. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And they're going to be ruling. Well, we South Africa's come to them again to the well, wait, one's the criminal and the other's the. Right. So individu right. individuals can be tried in the international court, criminal court. Mm -hmm. In the inter international uh, court of justice, it's only nations. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, South Africa and others are filing uh, charges against mm -hmm. uh, aiders and abettors in the international court, criminal right. court. Uh, and it's we're coming up real soon to where Israel was required to give the International Court of Justice a report on how they were stopping uh, any acts that could be considered genocide. And that will be interesting to see, too, because oh, yeah. it doesn't, doesn't seem like they've done a single damn thing, actually. Right. Right. So much. Well, they've they've got some great um, rejoinders and excuses for why they're not. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that I, I get that that. That's going to take a, bo a big bowl of popcorn when that happens. <laughs> big bowl of Any tongue. other news, Mark? And when you hear people, mm. you know, the viewpoints of people in Israel about why would the U.S. object to what we're doing when we've done the same? Right. I mean, well, it, it, that's... lawless and as unresponsive as... As if that's a reason to not condemn Israel's action? I... I that kind of logic just really is uh, mm -hmm. path pathetic, really. I mean, um, it's self-serving, totally. And not to say that it isn't true, but stop committing the genocide and then we'll start listening to you. Um, exactly. But they have to defend themselves. Oh. <laughs> well, so, and the next, I'm sorry. 
Well, so uh, next in the news, um, did any of you listen to Tucker Carlson's interview of Russian President Vladimir Putin? I tried. <laughs> what did you think? What What was your impression? Listen to more. Hmm? What was your impression? Well, you know, I only got, I don't even know if I got a half hour in. I know I had two hours to do, so it was a little tough at the time. But um, the first thing I thought of was going back to the 700 or AD or whatever. Right. Uh, that, I mean, it's, in some ways, I think it's hard for our country to imagine a country going back that far. I mean, do you know what I mean? It's like, oh yeah, it's just like it's from another planet in a way. But I felt like what it would probably be leading to is why we are, why this is our land too. That that. It, but I didn't. I didn't. I don't know. I was relying on someone like you who'd listen to the whole thing to try to put it in some kind of a context. I I actually found. I mean, his going on and on uh, about history is not uncommon for any Russians, actually. They like to talk right. about the context. And uh, and so, and with Putin, he's obviously, you know, uh, pretty damn smart, right? I mean, uh, to be able to um, carry on like that, I, I actually felt kind of unconvinced Um like he was claiming, well, Ukraine is really Russian, and you know, it's it's kind of like to me that's not the mo more important thing. But he was emphasizing that, and I think probably for Russians, maybe that is the important thing. But what what he did say, um, and so that wasn't that convincing to me, right? But um, what he did say, and what he has said very consistently. Uh, for many years now, before the invasion and after the invasion, is why, you know, why they invaded Ukraine. And again, he he, it's three reasons, and basically, there's no reason to not to believe the guy because every all the evidence points to those three reasons. And one is the principal one is is because. Uh, uh, we were trying to press Ukraine into NATO, which would have put a hostile mm -hmm. military right on their border, right? Which, uh, again, the comparison would be is if the Chinese somehow got the Canadians to put in uh, military units and, and armored divisions on the border with the United States, uh, you know, uh, would the would the U.S. What would the U.S. do? Well, the U.S. would see that as as a provocation, right? And right. Well, so does Russia. The precedent is there in Cuba. Yeah, Cuba is a great example. Yep, yep. Um, but then he, we then got he, our way that time. He 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 also said, and and there was kind of a glimmer of a good question from. Carlson, I think he was just unprepared. He wasn't prepared. He didn't do his homework, I don't think. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was kind of like a deer in the headlights most of the time. But the other two reasons, one was to stop the, um, you know, the, the civil war being waged against the Russian speakers in the Donbass part of Ukraine. That He, he covered that, and that seems pretty straightforward. Um, and then the last part of it was denazification of Ukraine. And, mm -hmm. and Tucker 
Carlson actually started to press on that. What does that ex exactly mean? Which I think is a really good question. Um, and Putin really, you know, he didn't. He had sort of an answer, but not. He didn't have as good of an answer I thought he was going to give. Um, but um, those, you know, um, it, you know, even Putin. <laughs> later on complained that he was ready for sharp questions that mostly didn't come from him right um and i i did a little i did a little homework because this isn't the i mean putin's been interviewed by oliver stone the filmmaker back in 2015 oh. through 2017 it's like hours and hours and hours of interview and he did it over time not just in one sitting like he did with carlson but he did it over time and you compare the journalism of this filmmaker, he did a much better job. He was mm -hmm. much more prepared. He was able to converse about Russian history with, <laughs> with Putin, uh, both, you know, uh, ancient history and current history. He did his homework. Um, and he managed to ask more informed and pointed questions of Putin than did Carlson. So... He, uh, the filmmaker outdid the journalist in the art of journalism in this case. Um, but that being said, I'm glad, you know, it, it's good It's good to hear unfiltered what uh, our, the supposed Hitler of, of the planet is actually saying and not taking it just from the spin that we hear uh, so much. And that's why the media reacted very negatively in this country to the interview is that because they couldn't um, they couldn't spin the narrative. Gotcha. Well, I wonder yeah. since it was Tucker Carlson and not um, Sophie somebody Tucker. else like, yeah, you know, it's so, or it's not Chris Hayes. I, I wonder if it changed the audience, even if the questions were, you know, simple and you know softballs yeah so why I, did, I wonder i don't know Putin was was calculating okay who's going to be listening to this who's my audience and what are they going to respond to yeah so, of course what is what okay. is what is am i here oh here i can't talk stop oh all right go ahead tucker carlson's why did tucker carlson do this i, I guess that's my that's the thing that's on my mind i guess i'm assuming so a putin would want to talk to uh trump's people right so if tucker carlson is no 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 I'll, I'll stop you right there putin wants to talk to the american people that's who he wants to talk to he doesn't want to talk to trump's people so but that's a, that they're americans <laughs> i mean i mean i i get, i'm trying to figure out where you're going with this tucker is right so putin knows tucker is trump's person and so he gives a two-hour ramble, you know, he'd go on, they said forever. Tucker said in the beginning, you know, oh gosh, this guy would have talked forever. He wasn't trying to to um filibuster. Right. He really wanted to just talk. So it seems like he wants to talk to he wants so what so what are the interests of these two people, Putin and Carlson? I guess I'm wondering why who started it, what Carlson thinks he can do when he talks to Putin. I said, they're trying to act like, you know, you don't really have to be afraid of Russia. You know, really, Trump is a good mm -hmm. guy. He's not going to, he'll just build hotels wherever he wants to build. He's a, actually, Carlson said no such thing about Trump uh, in, in this interview. There, there was nothing, 
I, actually, I can't even remember if Trump even came. Well, he did come up later on when Putin said he'd prefer Joe Biden very logically because Trump is too erratic and too irrational. It's hard, you know, uh, it's hard to do statecraft when you got someone that's really erratic like Trump. Um, so that so, about Trump. Yeah, he absolutely did. Mm hmm. And and so and so I think I don't I can't speak what Tucker Carlson's motives are you know probably a mix of good and bad I don't know who it doesn't matter actually what his motives were but Putin actually said he did not trust the American media because uh, because of its propaganda control um, and so he wanted to talk to the American people unfiltered and he knew he basically trusted that Carlson would be one would allow that to happen yeah i saw it as um a uh a redo or a um you know something comparable that he did that you know, uh, carlson did with with victor orban last august but i think he was in oh, hungary okay. for like a whole week and then he was broadcasting from there hmm. and i missed he, that one yeah yeah well we both did <laughs> <laughs> So is this you know, like the I was in Japan then and I didn't get a chance to see it. But uh is um you know, Sue, to your question, I think Mr. Putin is cleverly saying, Well, you know, Biden is this staid and you know, comfy, cushy elite. He's in the cabal, but Trump, he's a real man. You never know what he's gonna do. So I don't wanna have to deal with a tough mean no. clever guy like trump no 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 i i, I think okay. just, just the opposite jim okay. i think they don't want to deal with a dolt like and a unstable dolt like trump is i mean look well, he, why he, are they paying him so much <laughs> i know that's over the top isn't yeah, it? yeah yeah well it's the 2016 see, election on a future show we're going to cover <laughs> We're going to cover a little bit more about Russiagate. And there was a I final know. shoe that got dropped. That the uh, right. evidence was that even before the, I'll just, U.S. Intelligent, uh, intelligence reports consistently said in 2015 that, in 2016, that Putin and the Russians wanted Hillary Clinton to win. Okay, only because of the same reason, because Trump is so erratic and so like kind of not there. He wants to deal with somebody who's a little more stable. And so that was that was and that that is actually the truth. U.S. intelligent reports came up with that very consistently. And that's what was just revealed here uh, a few days ago, back in in those days. And our most faithful listeners will have figured out by now that this was just a prequel, you know, calculated by Mark and Jim to, uh, you know, cre- create a controversy to drag them in and listen yet again and waste <laughs> Saturday afternoon so we can get them to listen to all the KFGM, you know, ads. Yeah, I, I don't know what it just- takes to to squelch a created totally political cre- politically created firestorm called Russiagate in order to mm-hmm. undermine Trump's presidency 
and continue to do so. Okay. And, and it's, uh, you know, I don't know what else, it, it, the evidence is all there to show that that's exactly what happened. There is no evidence otherwise. And, uh, but yet here mm -hmm. we're still talking about it, right? That's the power yeah. of the media and propaganda in this country. Mm -hmm. Well, dear listeners, watch this space or listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, More to come in the future. <laughs> yes. He's five foot two and he's six feet four. He fights with missiles and with spears. He's all of 31 and he's only 17. He's been a soldier for a thousand years. He's a Catholic, a Hindu, an atheist, a Jain, a Buddhist and a Baptist and a Jew. And he knows he shouldn't kill he knows he always will kill you for me, my friend, and me for you. And he's fighting for Canada, he's fighting for France, he's fighting for the USA. And he's fighting for the Russians, and he's fighting for Japan, and he thinks we'll put an end to war this way. And he's fighting for democracy, he's fighting for the Reds, he says it's for the peace of all. He's the one who must decide who's to live and who's to die, and he never sees the writing on the wall. But without him, how would Hitler have condemned him at Dachau? Without him, Caesar would have stood alone. He's the one who gives his body as a weapon of the war And without him all this killing can't go on He's the universal soldier and he really is to blame His orders come from far away no more They come from him and you and me And brothers can't you see This is not the way we put an end That was Universal Soldier, sung by Buffy St. Marie. I felt open to the idea that at, you know, when the wall fell and Putin came in and we completely dismantled that whole peace process and then so we got the Ukrainian war, that maybe Putin wasn't, you know, meant to be like terrible to start with. Um, or that Russia was terrible to start with, you know, that we've kind of earned what we've got in a way. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm curious about just what to, I mean, I'm open to, I'm I'm curious about Tucker Carlson, and, you know, so I hadn't really paid that much to being attention to him being in Hungary, but, you know, it's kind of like, well, you know, it's not so bad to have like a strong man in charge of your country because, you know, they really just want to stabilize things. And I think that's, that's the whole thing is that that's why people do turn towards authoritarian because mm -hmm. of the chaos. I mean, if you've got just chaos that you just, right. just go with it. And, so I yeah. guess that's where I'm just not, I just, I, I don't, 
I've never watched Tucker Carlson. I don't understand Tucker Carlson or why he's even not where he was at Fox, right? So he's got to find right. his own way now because of whatever screwed up things he did. Right, so, right. Yeah, so I just don't, you know, so he must have something going besides if I'm not on Fox, I must have someplace here. And I don't know. Well, I, I, I think I, I think Putin used Carlson way more than the other way around, for one. So I, I actually think Carlson's kind of boring to talk about, but um, but with Putin, all right, if you remember, and you brought up you brought up the 1990s when the fall of the Berlin Wall and fall of the Soviet Union, um, oh. there were there were no oligarchs in Russia, zero mm -hmm. oligarchs right. in Russia before the 1990s, and the country is run by oligarchs now, and Putin. Putin is very, and this is my take on Putin, right? I think he's a very capable, conservative uh, politician, and he's conservative for sure, and that he is at the service of the oligarchy, right? And he actually saved the oligarchs from themselves mm -hmm. back in the, the the turn of the the turn of the century, okay, where. Uh, you know, when, uh, you know, the veterans of the great patriotic wars, what they call it in, in Russia, World War II, um, veterans of that great patriotic war were dying in the streets. There was no one to pick up the bodies right, right, off right. of the streets. Mm -hmm. the, the, the life expectancy fell a tremendous amount in the 1990s in Russia. Putin comes along and basically says, okay, you know that he he's competent as a administrator and as a politician in this way he convinced the oligarchs no you got to have some social safety net you can't just rape and run he didn't say it to them to their face but uh you got to have you got to take care of the people otherwise we're going to have a rebellion on our hands and that's exactly what happened he saved the oligarchy from itself and um so I've got no, you know, I've got no love for Putin, but I have to, this interview also showed how competent and intelligent of a person he is. And he's he's acting purely out of the context that we're talking about. He's not the new Hitler. This is this is all propaganda from the mm -hmm. West. And and I and I contrasted Putin's interview with thinking about um Joe Biden or Donald Trump or uh Mick Mitch McConnell or uh the 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 Democrat in 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 the Senate um sitting down what's that Schumer? Schumer yeah Charles Schumer sitting right. down for an interview of 2 hours long covering the breadth I, I can't imagine any of the four of them being that smart or that competent to be able to sit that long and talk intelligently about world history about geopolitics about any of this stuff it's it's all they they run on just sort of um they're not as competent <laughs> that's the one good thing i say about putin he, he's competent at what he does the rest no well you know as a kgb guy he's supposed to be on top of all kinds of details he's a he's well, a fact man and he's been around a long time and he's been in power continuously Every almost as long as Stalin. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you know, it, when you're when you're in a position of authority, you end up learning how to function. Right. 
But yeah. yeah, but he's an authoritarian. There's no doubt about it. And he's okay, he's no Democrat. That's for sure. In the small okay, and it's sense. so becomes a question of uh, you admire competence or we admire competence as a group. But um, some people just aren't very nice. And they have no difficulty, uh, you know, abusing another group um, in, in making a, um, a non-voluntary <laughs> reunion. Right. Exactly. Well, and so it, it, on, on that score, he's no different than Biden or Trump. You know, Mark, that's I think there are big differences between Joe Biden and um the man and Putin. Okay, we can we can we can talk about that, but I I don't I know. I, honestly I think in, in terms of em, in terms of empire, shows. Jim, in terms of empire, we just talked about the U.S. empire being much greater than true. the Russian empire. True, true, and and things are falling apart, and a I lot know. of that has to do with incompetence of the top of the U.S. empire, and I don't know what's so controversial about that. <laughs> Well, there may, there may be competence, but I don't. I think they get outvoted by uh, economic interests. No, it's hey, no. Anyway, go ahead, Sue. You, you're next. About between 1990 and now, that we basically created the oligarchs, and then yes. they tried to run with mm -hmm. the whole game. And real, apparently, you're saying that Putin helped them realize that you can't just impoverish your people and it's interesting right. that that's that same period of time that our oligarchs started getting like more out of hand meaning right yeah given the whole wedding cake if you will and uh just have taken off with it to say nothing of the military complex absolutely right, right. So, and the 401ks i mean they've got all our money up there to play with you know mm -hmm. we've got no control <laughs> over that money anymore no sue you make a great money. point I think and if so, you look, I mean, we've completely fueled this whole thing. Um, uh, I can't remember where I was going with this, except that I mean, you got your oligarchs, um, that whole oligarchic process, and now you're trying to say, in the middle of all that, somehow we're preserving our democracy when they're probably not attached to it. Right. I'm yeah. Sorry, did you? Yeah. I, I, if you hadn't, yeah, go ahead, Mark. Well, I was just going to say that in terms of. Having true democracy, um, that uh, you know, the oligarchs do not want that to happen because that means they would disappear as oligarchs, right? They'd be still there as people, but they wouldn't be so they wouldn't be so massively wealthy. And this is this is where the fight is is being fought. Putin Putin would be on the same side as the oligarchs in this country, right? It, not yes. for national interest, but for systemic interest. And I mm -hmm. think that there's, there, you know, a lot of other countries are trying to forge a third way or a, not a, even a third way, a second way of how, how do they remain independent yet and uh, in, 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 uh, of the United States empire and yet um, some of them are authoritarians, have no good intentions for their people, and others are are real Democrats, real uh, you know democratic socialists, if you will, that will uh, try to do what's good for their people, and um, and that's those are the people that we need to get behind. I don't see that in the main part of the U.S. leadership. 
You are listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown, full-powered Missoula Community Radio, live streaming also on 1015kfgm.org. So, yeah, I, and, and, and I think, Sue, you made a great point. If you looked at income distribution in both countries, I think the percentage of wealth owned in, in Russia by, say, the one 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 hundredth of a percent uh you know versus the percentage of wealth owned by the one one hundredth of one percent or something you know equivalently small is about the same in both countries you know half the you know half the population owns half or should i say the entire population owns half of the wealth and then there is um you know eight or ten people that control the other half right so and, and that's the very and that's, defi- that's the definition of oligarchy right there yeah, yeah. I, it certainly is you know I, I i i bet as gini coefficients that us and ussr have similarly deplorable numbers yeah oh so where do we go from here, Mark? What's next? Well, well uh, do we want to talk a little bit about the death of Russian dissident Alexei Nalvani in prison? Or Oh, sure. Death yeah. only comes once. We might as well make a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been in the news a lot lately here. Um, oh. And, um, uh, in fact, my I was looking at my feeds for this show, and um you know i'm i'm definitely sad to hear of his mistreatment and death he he definitely uh right. suffered under an authoritarian uh regime in russia right. um and repeatedly so, he also got poisoned right right well and but he isn't the only one um i'll just say yeah, that's this. true um authority and authoritarian governments whichever stripe they are uh uh do this sort of thing and rationalize it as statecraft however the U.S. corporate media that is lionizing Navalny now are serving statecraft interests as well. Um, the corporate media has given little substantial coverage to another Russian dissident, longtime anti-war activist and Marxist Boris Kargalitsky, who was just sentenced to five years in prison uh, after uh, the, the state appealed his $6,000 fine um, but Kargalitsky has spans the Soviet Union and uh, Russia. Um, he was he was a dissident. Um, he's about my age, mm-hmm. sixty five. He was a dissident uh, back in the uh, in the Soviet Union days uh, against their nuclear mm-hmm. weapons, and has been very consistently anti war. So, um, very little given to him, probably because he's a Marxist and anti war, right? Um, and also the corporate media does not cover the death of American journalist Gonzalo Lira, an American citizen, uh, who was falsely arrested for his journalistic work uh, and died in a Ukrainian prison without as much as a word of protest from the U.S. State Department, uh, despite his, the efforts of uh, Lira's father, uh, who's uh, Chilean, um, he he expresses great disgust at the U.S. government uh, for uh, letting uh, his son die in prison, and um, and he, Lira, for his part, he he was a critic of the Ukrainian government while being in Ukraine for the entire 
part of the war. In fact, he was living in Kharkov before uh, the the Russian invasion, and um, and and he wasn't all that terribly fond of the Russians either. But uh, he was the he was the one person who was talking truth about the Ukrainian government. And he goes, one of the, his famous quotes was, um, the, uh, you know, when you talk about neo-Nazis in Ukraine, in the government and outside of the government, these aren't your garden variety neo-Nazis in the United States that go parading around and giving Hitler salutes and stuff mm -hmm. like that. These guys are nasty and they kill people and they, and they're, they're basically run protection rackets, right? That they will threaten people uh with beating them up or burning out their store unless they pay retribution you know tribute to to their uh to their group these guys are murderers right and he says you don't mm -hmm. mess around with them well maybe it was one of those that actually did gonzalo in in the end but Ooh. not talking a, not, about azov brigade that's one of them that's not the only one okay. the, they're called the right sector anymore but uh, okay. estimates go up to maybe 25% of the military is, uh, neo-Nazi. Um, the, oh, okay. the general, that, that's the, fascinating. Haven't seen those numbers, but. Oh yeah. Well, the, awesome. the general, the general okay. that was just dismissed by, uh, uh, oh. by, uh, um, uh, that's the backstory. The president, okay. he's, he's a neo-Nazi, right? And so it was a power play between, um, uh, what's his name? The yeah, president Yadilinsky. of Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, not Kargolitsky. Um, but um, anyway, so, so, you know, there's a lot of people saying, well, um, he's made enemies of the, the, the right sector, uh, which means that he's probably uh, uh, not long for this world. And um, probably that government is not long for this world either within this year, perhaps, uh, the Ukrainian government will fall, or the military will totally disintegrate. Mm. And and wow. uh, um, there's all kinds of uh, all kinds. Of, uh, there's very little uh, contrary predictions, except from the usual propaganda sources. Well, you that's intriguing. Something about our our imprisoned journalist. Yeah, Julian Assange mm -hmm. being another one. And that's a travesty and a disgrace. Yeah, it is. It's completely a travesty and a disgrace, and it's oh, very, it's hypo yeah. it's hypocritical, is what it is. And think of all the journalists in Gaza too. I mean, I just there's been oh yeah, thank how you. How many how many have been killed? Do you know Do you know Sue? How many have been killed in Gaza? Journalists? I can't tell you. <clears throat> there's it, it. It's dozens at least right right and, right and and this and this is in israel has long been known for targeting journalists and killing them mm -hmm. um that's that's disgusting i don't know why right. we're, we're on the okay. we're on the side of disgusting here yeah a wonderful piece by jeremy scahill in the intercept recently talking about the is the official israeli approach to how the story leaks out and it sounds an awful lot like something from a um, time period like 80 years ago and very in a very disturbing way yeah yeah that's uh, uh it's it's terrible um indeed
Yeah. And we've talked about that on the show over and over again. <clears throat> yeah. Yep. We, we certainly have. Did you want to say anything more or what's. No, I, 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 you know, I'll just say, I mean, it, it's like, a again, Navalny, um, he, he wasn't, he was a pretty vicious anti-Muslim person, by the way. Um, I've, I've seen some of the uh, videos that he's made. Um, and if the interpret, if the, you know, translation is correct, you know, he's comparing uh, Muslim Muslims to cockroaches, right? Um, that dehumanization. So he, his hands were entirely clean. I don't think Kargalitsky would ever do something like that. But um, but anyway, so here this guy, it's he was mistreated. He's speaking out. He he's you know, and he he gets killed for his efforts. Um, yeah. I think I think that's I think that's a tragedy. But that the press is lionizing him and not some of these other journalists is statecraft. Mm -hmm. That's statecraft, right? That's propaganda. Gotcha. So do you want to go with news in a different direction, Mark? Yeah. Well, it, it, this next piece is about persistent worries about President Biden and his forgetfulness. As listeners may have missed that there has been a special investigator, Robert K. Herr, investigating Biden's possession at home of confidential military information on Afghanistan, which is ostensibly a, a felony, right? This is what Trump mm -hmm. is being accused of as well. Um, her issued his report on February 5th. He concludes that Biden's offenses, while real, are not prosecutable because, as the report states, quote, we have also considered that at trial, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury, as he did during our interview of him, as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Based on our direct interactions with and observations of him, he is someone for whom many jurors will want to identify reasonable doubt. It would be difficult to convince a jury that they should convict him by then a former president well into his 80s of a serious felony that requires a mental state of willfulness, end quote. A mental state of willfulness. That's which like which you say something impolite. No, it's not. It's it's okay. well, it, it is kind of. But what <laughs> what it, what he spends writing in this report? It's a multi-hundred-page report. He lays out the the legality of the charge, and that it's you have to prove two things: one, that he actually possessed such documents, and two, that he deliberately did so. Okay, mm -hmm. that's that's the. Right mental state of willfulness. And he basically says, nope, we can't prove the second. Yeah, which is true. And um, Merrick Garland is great at saying, well, we have 99.9% .9 of the facts we need, but without that 10th of a percent, I'm just really uncomfortable about doing anything with this case. Well, that it actually, it wasn't Garland that said that it was her as, as the oh, yeah, special true. prosecutor. You know, that's, but, that's but also it's... Garland's style. But, but, it, but also in under the law, it's more like 50%, right? That they can prove 50%, oh, okay. but they can't prove the other 50%, all right? Okay. So and that's probably a more fair assessment of this. Um, 
And specifically, this is what the report says about Biden's memory, which I think is, I, 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 I this should be earth shattering to a lot of people. I think, um, uh, Mr. So this is quote from the report on page two hundred seven and two hundred eight. If I also encourage you to read the original source, don't read the commentary first. Read the thing first, and then read the commentary. Um, anyway. From the report, quote, Mr. Biden's memory also appeared to have significant limitations, both at the time he spoke to his ghostwriter, Mike, or Mark Zwanitzer in 2017, as evidenced by their recorded conversations, and today as evidenced by his recorded interview with our office. Mr. Biden's recorded conversations with Zwanitzer from 2017, okay, this is before uh, he was elected, all right? are often painfully slow, with Mr. Biden struggling to remember events and straining at times to read and relay his own notebook entries. In his interview with our office, Mr. Biden's memory was worse. He did not remember when he was vice president, forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended, quote, if it was 2013, when did I stop being vice president, end quote, and forgetting on the second day of the interview, when his term when when his term began in uh, he's quoted as saying in 20 in in 2009 am i still vice president end quote um, he did not remember and this is the report continuing he did not remember even within several years when his son bo died and his memory appeared hazy when describing the afghanistan debate that was once so important to him among other things, he mistakenly said he, quote, had a real difference, quote, of opinion with General Carl Eikenberry, when, in fact, Eikenberry was an ally whom Mr. Biden cited approvingly in his Thanksgiving memo to President Obama. In a case where the government must prove that Mr. Biden knew he had possession of the classified Afghanistan documents after the vice presidency and chose to keep those documents, Knowing he was violating the law, we expect that at trial, his attorneys would emphasize these limitations in his recall, end quote. You know, it is astounding that he forgot those things. <clears throat> in his 80s. <laughs> and um, it's easy to suppress things and confuse them as memories if you don't want to deal with them straight up. No, yeah. uh, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm going to a, into a realm that doesn't belong on the show because it's not what we do. But yeah, uh, it I can empathize with the situation he was in because oh, the, yeah. the harshness and the and the relief or the, you know, outline of the events that he was living through. And it gets suppressed. Yeah, but there are some things like the death of his son or the Afghanistan, right. because he was in a big debate with, um, the report goes into this in some detail, he was in a big debate with Obama and some of his aides against going into Afghanistan, which is, you know, kind of ironic mm -hmm. now how he's being blamed for the loss in Afghanistan, which um, he didn't create really, but, um, and that debate, that, that would be something that, you know, would be vindication, right? And he couldn't he he couldn't True. remember that. I mean, that was um, anyway. Uh, 
So you you were going to say something? Well, if you don't mind, yeah. So the one thing I'm um, I'm trying to be hopeful here. Um, so the sentence it would be difficult to convince a jury. So you're saying so apparently this person's arguing that they wouldn't be do, trying to convict him of this felony while he's president, correct? Because he says it would be difficult to convince a jury that they should convict him by then a former president well into his 80s, yeah. meaning one term versus two terms. So he's talking either two to six years in the future and how he will be functioning at that point. I, no, I think he what what he's saying is that what they saw currently and what in through taped interviews mm. with his ghostwriter back in back seven years ago. Okay, seven years ago, there's these recordings that the that the uh, uh, ghostwriter tried to erase some of that, right? And they recreated much of it, but not completely. But um, and so they're not going to prosecute the. They decided not to prosecute mm -hmm. the for destruction of evidence. But um, but they, you know, apparently they, in their opinion, right, uh, in their legal opinion, that no jury would convict them because they couldn't. Uh, that 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 Biden's defense team would say no. He's a forgetful old man. He won't be able to remember this. And um, because and they, they could show it on the stand. Right. I mean, pretty easy. Unfortunately, it's ugly. You know, it's r embarrassing for Biden. This is why I think I, I think oh. it, I think it was uh, putting him up for for this term of office. I think it was personally, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I think his wife should have said absolutely not. Um, because it would, uh, he, he wouldn't be in this position to really embarrass himself, I'm afraid. Um, well, I hear you. And as I said, I'm trying to be hopeful in that they were talking about, from this sentence, they're talking about trying to convict him when he's done being president, which is... Right. Which is the only way they can do that. That's what I was curious about. And yeah. the, that's, that's the point that they're arguing for. And I don't know. Um, and so that's, I mean, I, I, I'm still hopeful because I don't see personally another candidate other than my, my guy. Um, anyhow. Yeah. No, it's it's depressing, and I think I really um, I'm I'm not quite sure to say what you would say about his wife is and her role. It's it's I'm that just doesn't strike me as how I would say it. That's okay. I mean, that's that's just that's my opinion. But mm -hmm. um, I I at, at the time he ran for office, that is exactly what I thought because he would. Be all have all kinds of gaffes, you know, and whatnot that were uh, kind of being hushed up and sort of smoothed over and that kind of thing. And he's always been prone to that, but it was fairly serious even mm -hmm. back in the 2020. But to me, what what this says is that if if Biden's capacity is diminished, and Jim brought up earlier in discussion, uh, you know, before the show, 
that uh, it's very clear that uh, President Ronald Reagan had very big capacity problems, probably suffering from Alzheimer's, especially in his second term, it raises the question that, you know, to me, does it really matter who we elect president? Because obviously the president is making, is not making the kinds of decisions that we think that a president is making. And um, mm -hmm. the machinery of government will continue along more or less the same track. Um, True. In, in, in other words, I mean, I, I'm, you know, please push back if you don't agree. But to me, the, the summary is the U.S. presidential election is already an undemocratic farce. It doesn't really matter who wins. Now, there's marginal reasons why people are different that. Trump, I mean, Biden is marginally better than Trump. I think I think there is qualities about Biden that are definitely better than Trump. Um, and I think Trump has a few qualities too that are attractive to a lot of people. But no matter who <laughs> but no matter who wins, the defense okay. of the US Empire and its oligarchs will be the main task of the US political machine, regardless of who That's, is elected. Uh, I know it doesn't matter who the emperor was. Whether he was a Roman citizen or not, even you know, but I, this is this reminds me way too much of Jeff Session and the Senate testimony he gave in 2017 for the Comey Commission, and how he he I don't think he remembered what his name was. His his testimony was so um, inconclusive. So yeah, I'd, uh, you. You know, memory loss is a real thing. We're all human. Yeah, but we all don't need yeah. to be president. <laughs> um, you're you're right. You're right. And I, it, you know, I was saying, as much as I love Joe Biden, I've I've known him all my life. Um, you know, even back um, in 2016, um, when he was doing his usual and getting single digit. <laughs> numbers in the polls that uh, if it wasn't uh, for Jim Clyburn, he wouldn't have become president. Right. Yeah. And uh, that I thought, well, this is, this is interesting. Um, it's n notable. I, I don't understand what's going on. I don't agree with it, but you know, at least Joe, I know. And here we go, but I wish it could be Bernie, but it won't be. We're not ready for, for an, such a complete understanding of where this country is headed that we pick somebody that could actually do something about it. I'd like to hear Bernie talk for two hours. So yeah. would I. He, he could probably carry the conversation, couldn't he, I think? Yeah, there are there is outstanding talent in the Democratic Party that are that are at a level that is, you know, far enough away from the king that you uh, they can do their job uh, to the best of their abilities and not get into trouble. Are you um, speaking of the squad? <laughs> Are you speaking yeah, well, of the squad? Yes, them. You know, just about everybody. Be it um, the the party is full of talent, top to bottom, and then you go over to the other side of the aisle, and it's a freak show. So if well, if if uh, if the congressional function. And if the legislative function has anything to do with running a government, um, anyone that would make it easier for one party 
to have a bigger role in running the country would be a good thing. And uh, Mr. Biden comes from the same party as the people that are capable. And that's what we were saying about Biden or, or uh, Putin a while ago. You right. know, the guy's capable, you know, smart is good. Mm-hmm. Sue, you're going to say something? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, you'd have to compare a person trying governing, you know, in their, I mean, like I'm 77, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little sensitive around the ageism thing and, you know, yeah. that. so um, I'm, you'd have to compare what somebody who is in their prime, let's call Obama in his prime versus whoever. Mm-hmm. Or, or, yeah, or, I mean, when you think of like titans of industry, I mean, you've got your Coke who's still running his empire, I assume, unless now it's being just run by suits, which I, I doubt. It's just uh, hard to. Well, yeah, you, you know, it's not, it's not about the age as a number. Um, it's about capacity, right? It's about the ability, and and so this is not about saying. I mean, I I I am too sensitive about uh, about ageism. Uh, being sixty five, you're <laughs> you got some years on me, both of you. But but still sixty five. That's okay, young fella. You'll learn in time. <laughs> I'll slap my knee. Um, and, uh, anyway, uh, but you know, I'm I'm definitely sensitive to this age and ability thing. And even though I do feel like I'm not, uh, you know, my mental acuity sometimes isn't as brisk as it was even ten years ago, and certainly not physically. Um, I, I I think I'm uh, more capable in other ways now than that snappy, you know, kind of thing. So I'm not, I'm not criticizing Biden because of his age. It's because of the capacity. And I think there's something going neurologically going wrong with him. And, but it's, we live in a cynical political society where it says, okay, we'll put him up. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the, the system will continue to run. And, uh, right. regardless of who we choose. I think Sue made a great point in that uh, Mr. Obama had, was a superstar, and he was elected by people that had faith that he could go in there and make a difference. And he got bogged down and was um, a visionary president that didn't come anywhere near his potential. And so it's, uh, you know, as we were saying at the very, 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 very beginning of the show, we are hegemons, that the inertia overcomes the best intentions of the very best men. So, well, I still like what FDR said, you know, if you give him a good idea, make him do it. And that's (laughs) right. Okay. Uh, That was probably when, though, we still had uh, remains of a democracy and, uh, um, well, I don't. I don't hear Joe Biden saying that, or Donald Trump, for that matter, right? Well, we still need to make him do it. Oh no! I don't get me oh, wrong. Absolutely, that's, hold people's feet to the fire. In fact, you that's the make the fire hotter. It's about the only thing we have left. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? Are you thinking it's time to change a topic, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> we we've, we've beaten this donkey. That's it. And I beat the elephant. So, 
An encouraging situation in Pakistan. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Um, and uh, especially those of us needing good examples to learn from for democracy, how to best respond to the death of the U.S. democracy. In, in a February 9th edition of The Intercept, Ryan Grimm writes, uh, and this is a fascinating story, by the way. It's a little long, but it's worth telling. Last year in Pakistan, a bystander happened to catch on camera police raiding the Sialkot home, which is a city in Pakistan, of Usman Dar. At the time, Dar was an opposition candidate representing former Prime Minister Imran Khan's Pakistan Tariq E. Insaf, or PTI, thank God PTI is easier to say, uh, the PTI party, which the military and its civilian allies were busy suppressing with abductions, raids, blackmail, and threats. Khan, a populist prime minister, was forced from office in 2022 under military pressure with the encouragement of the United States. Hmm. Through a window, video shows Pakistani police officials assaulting Dar's elderly mother, Rahana Dar, in her bedroom. Dar's brother, Umar Dar, was also picked up, though police only acknowledged he'd been arrested much later at a court hearing. When Usman Dar emerged from custody, he announced he was stepping down from the race and leaving the party, as many other PTI candidates have done under similar pressure. But then came a new wrinkle, a symbol of the refusal of Khan supporters to bow to the military-backed government. While the news was announced that Dar was withdrawing from the race, and with another son still missing, his mother went on television to say that she would be running instead. Kawaja Asif, Rahana Dar said in a video posted on social media directed to the army-backed political rival of her son. Kawaja Asif, you have achieved what you wanted by making my son step down at gunpoint. But my son has quit politics, not me. Now you will face me in politics. She, end quote, she was a political novice, an angry mother who represented the country's frustration with its ruling elite. Uh, she said while filing her nomination papers, send me to jail or handcuff me. I will contest the general elections for sure. Those papers were initially rejected, like they were for so many PTI candidates and only PTI candidates, and she had to refile. Nevertheless, she persisted. On Thursday night, election night, this past Thursday, with her son Umar still in custody, she shocked the country. With 99% of precincts counted, she had beaten that lifetime politician Kawaja Asif, with 131,615 votes to 82,615 votes. Kind of very similar to uh, AOC beating uh, that longtime guy we forget now um, in, in uh, Brooklyn. Um, anyway, the loss by Asif, who was allied with Nawaz Sharif, the military-backed candidate whose victory Vox had called almost a fait accompli, was a blow to the army. Then came one more wrinkle, one that many in Pakistan expected, but which was still shocking. When the full results were announced, Dar's total had been reduced by 31,434 votes, while Asif gained votes, and he was declared the winner. Boy, that's 
get a, a, a D minus for creativity there on the part yeah. of the no, I'm in Georgia government. right now, so I know how that works. <laughs> Just give me X number of new votes. You can that's, that's it. Across the uh, so it isn't just this one instance, right? Across the country, similar reversals are flowing out from Pakistan's election commission. As polling ended Thursday evening, early results shocked the establishment and even some dispirited supporters of Khan, who had worried that Pakistani authorities had successfully done everything they could to manipulate the outcome. Those results suggested a landslide landslide victory for ousted former Prime Minister Imran Khan's party, even as Khan himself sits in prison, ineligible to run. But in several key races, results have suddenly swung toward the military-backed party after hours of unexplained delays. In the NA-128 constituency, where the PTI-backed candidate is senior lawyer Salman Akram Raja, Raja was leading with 100,000 votes in 1,310 out of 1,320 polling stations. On Friday, after counting those 10 polling stations, he was trailing by 13,522 votes, a swing of 113,000 votes. <laughs> but the publicly available totals from the polling stations did not add up with the results announced by the election commission. He took the case to high court, which granted him a stay and stopped the election commission from announcing the winner pending further investigation. Following his lead, multiple PTI candidates have announced that they will take their case cases to court. Rahana Dar is one of them. The problem now for the Pakistani army is that it seems to have been unprepared for the explosion of support for Khan's candidates. Pakistani election laws explicitly state that the returning officer shall compile provisional results on or before 2 a.m. the day immediately following the polling day, which in this case was Friday. But for thousands of polling stations across Pakistan, results were stopped and had not come in even 24 hours after polling ended. Across the country, candidates and their supporters have refused to leave polling locations without official documentation of the vote leading to tense and violent confrontations. Prior to the election, many observers had raised the alarm about potential fraud in the Pakistani elections. Human rights organizations such as Amnesty International voiced concerns over the possibility of internet shutdown on election day. Those concerns turned out to be warranted. The Pakistani military did indeed shut down internet and mobile data for most of the day. When internet returned early on Friday in Pakistan, independent candidates across Pakistan seemed to have a clear majority in parliament with 127 seats. Trailing far behind were the Pakistan Muslim League, or PMLN, headed by the former prime minister and military-backed candidate Sharif, and the Balawal Bhutto Zardari's Pakistan People Party, with 65 and 48 seats, respectively. The independent candidates are mostly members of PTA who were forced to run as independent in a court decision that was called a huge blow to fundamental rights in Pakistan. The move also deprived PTI of its electoral symbol, the cricket bat, after Imran Khan, who is a cricketer, and had the candidates run on randomly assigned symbols. Quote, PTI-backed independence at this moment in the lead in NA, KPK, and Punjab assemblies. This is unprecedented, 
end quote, tweeted Mohammed Zubair, a former minister and member of the PMLN, the opposition to the PTI. He said, the unusual delay in the result announcement has made the process completely dubious, leaving no moral authority for PMLN to rule, end quote. This is this is the former minister saying this. Um, on Friday, Sharif absurdly declared victory. From prison, so did Khan, with an artificial intelligence being used to simulate his voice, reading a statement, quote, by voting yesterday, you have set up the foundation for true freedom, uh, the authorized AI voice, Khan said, making reference to the movement for true freedom he has led since his ouster. He also said, I had complete faith that you would go out to vote. Your massive turnout shocked everyone, end quote. Had you heard about that, Sue? No, this is a Mr. Oh. Smith goes to town moment. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Where's Frank Capra's at work in Pakistan as we speak? And and so what, what happened was when they – Usually when they vote, they have the party symbol next to the candidate. Mm -hmm. But in this case, all the PTI candidates had to go independent. So there was no unifying symbol. It was all over the map, gotcha. all, all names. So that was confusing with people, yet still they won the massive votes. That's um, that's organizing on the ground. That's, that's what that tells right. me. There was a lot of organizing on the ground. It wasn't left up to the media because, of course, uh, the military had shut down the Internet and uh, all the media is pro-ruling party. So uh, they had to they had to do this by word of mouth and, and local neighborhood by neighborhood organizing, probably. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah. Part. What we're all about it, voice of the people. <laughs> Taking it to the streets. Doing it one vote at a time. That's it. Yeah, I'm interested to see what the military is going to wind up, how it's all going to wind up, on it? Right. Well, It'll be an earthquake or a flood. One of the two. <laughs> but one of the, uh, um, you know, the any for any even a military dictatorship to rule, it needs to have legitimacy in the eyes of the people. Otherwise, people right. are just going to ignore it and. I don't see how the military and, and the ruling party is going to have any legitimacy after this. There's going to be, there's always the loyal hanger-ons, right? But um, mm -hmm. but for the most people, they'll go, mm, not so much. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm eager to see what does happen. I hope the news and the story gets picked up because Pakistan's one of the world's most populous countries. It's yeah. a nuclear power. Yep. Uh, you know, this <laughs> this isn't Togo or, or Benin. No. This is the real deal. Yeah. So yeah, they... This, go this ahead. Country, is this a country-wide election? I can't quite figure that out. Yes. 100,000, yep. right? Or was it million? Well, that was just that was just for the district that they were running in, the, the federal oh. district. Okay, yeah, because I couldn't... The numbers didn't seem to match up with how big of a you know, populous the country it was. I have something kind of tangential. You may not keep this, but I've been really interested in direct democracy in Montana as yes. far as the initiative goes. And, um, you know, trying to see if we can build a, um, well, basically an army of people around, you know, because we have to spread out 
our signature gathering across the state, not just the most populous areas. We have to have people all over the state um, who are ready to like defend democracy if they try to take down the Constitution or whatever. Right. And so, um, but and I was feeling pretty good about the possibilities. And then, of course, um, there was a, a referent, uh, an initiative proposed that had to do with uh, abortion freeing, making yep. sure that be protected in instead of only under privacy it would be specifically addressed and that was um that was the people who um have who vet it at the state level had um disqualified it right meaning as far as they couldn't even go out and gather signatures yet and so that's that's still you know the weak point of of how to actually have it happen i mean you can have your people who want it but you still have to have a like kind of like a districting mission where it's not party politics right and through that system so there's always you, you just have to keep fighting because it's you just you can try for grassroots but then you still have to make sure it's still possible you right have it- you have to have access to the ballot, which is which. Yeah. You you brought up a great example of it being denied by the Republican Secretary of State, who's right. I mean, you know, really, yeah. So yep. that you may not. Well, and 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 there. So in this case, I mean, it doesn't always work this way, right? What they had people signing up. They couldn't sign up as a PTI party, but they had they could sign up independently to run for office, and this is exactly what happened, right? Um, and they identified themselves as independent, right? So whenever, and they probably told people, you see the word independent, that's the PTI candidate, right? That's the one to vote for, and how they organize that. But but you're right. I think that uh, there's been all kinds of uh, attempts at suppression by the uh, Republican supermajority in Montana's legislature to uh, uh, really uh, control or make useless the uh, the citizen initiative process, which is something Montana's hold near and dear and should. Um, absolutely. It's a government. Really. Right, exactly. It's, it's government. It, it's the third, fourth branch of government, right, in some sense. Um, in every sense really if you think about it yeah 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 exactly um so uh yeah that's it's it's pretty despicable the uh, republicans in this state trying to uh, suppress that that's uh, and there was a court decision um a, a preliminary decision that held uh just recently in montana that <clears throat> one of the bills uh that uh uh, mm-hmm. Others, including you know the Montana Democratic Socialists and others, testified against in the legislature, you know, uh, saying that you have to put up thousands of dollars to run a ballot initiative, and it, the Secretary of State and the Attorney General get to make you know pronouncements on, and and also add on in a, a statement saying how it's going to affect their own their. Uh, meaning the, the 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 business interests of the state, uh, really, just uh, a judge found that to be too far, um, and um, and through and throughout that law, which is excellent, that's a really good news. Um, it's just a, a it's just a naked power grab, is what it is, and 
Um, and a lot of us saw that for what it was at the time. So the okay. courts, the, the courts, and in, 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 just one last thing I'd say and let you uh, speak, uh, uh, Sue, that uh, in in Pakistan as well, it's the courts that are maintaining the integrity of the political system such as it is. It's like the last course of that. In Montana, it's kind of the same. Um, mm-hmm. well, look at Israel. I mean, that's what they're trying to take down. Well, that's one of, pre, pre-Gaza. Mm-hmm. That was a controversy over there. Yeah, the Netanyahu's right. That was a great opposition in the whole country, Israel, to Netanyahu and his attempts to cook the political books in his favor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then October seventh happened, and um, but he's going nowhere fast. Um, I, I don't think. Yes, enough for me. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, Mark, what's the ultimate news story for today? <laughs> the ultimate. Well, we go local on this one, Jim. Um, That's the best way. That's there we go. Way. In an article in the Missoulian on February 7th, quote, U.S. post office workers in Missoula are extremely skeptical of a plan to possibly, quote, modernize the facility, unquote, here because it may involve transferring outgoing mail processing operations currently performed in Missoula to Spokane, Washington. Robert Hopp, president of the American Postal Workers Union Local 113, um, and that's mixed old union, by the way, um, said that that means mail would get sent from Missoula more than 200 miles over a mountain pass, actually two mountain passes, to Spokane to get processed before a lot of it is sent back to be delivered. He explained, if, you, if you're sending something from Missoula to Missoula, it's going to get driven to Spokane first. Then it's going to get sort, sorted out over there, which may take days. Then if it's bound for Missoula, it gets driven on a semi back to Missoula, end quote. Even mail that is bound for other parts of the country will have the added step of getting sent to Spokane first. Hop believes that the plan involving driving over Lookout Pass, which is often closed due to bad weather or crash vehicles, uh, amen to that, um, Mm -hmm. will often add days to mail delivery times. Uh, He said, we do a ton of Veterans Administration medications. Stuff like that's going to suffer. A lot of people rely on their physical Social Security checks, things like that. A ton of local businesses take advantage of those flat rate boxes. All their shipping could be delayed for two or more days, end quote. Medicaid and Medicare checks, mail-in voting ballots, tax refunds, legal documents, bills, and important notices could all be delayed, he said, end quote. Hmm. Yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> um, this brings me back to, um, to, Lou, to Mr. Joy, <laughs> aptly named fellow, wanting the to get rid of all the fancy new barcode machines remember in 2020 oh so somehow get you know surplusing this new equipment that was going to make the post office so much more efficient was getting trashed yeah so it seems like the same logic it's you know um sue and i were talking about this a little bit before there there is a concerted effort to uh uh, through um, basically because of neoliberal uh, reasons to 
privatize the postal service, right? And to hand over all of its tasks and all of its work over to, you guessed it, UPS, FedEx, DHL, you know, and, and other smaller companies. So private companies who will be charging more, having less service, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, Congress had passed a, a, a bill at the time uh, back in 2006, forcing the uh, self-funded, at this point, U uh, United States Postal Service, meaning the government provides no subsidies for the operation of the USPS. Absolutely. Um, to prepay the health insurance of postal workers yet born, like, you know, in excess of $50 billion. I think I'm underestimating. I think it's a lot more. It's like no other government agency has ever been made to prepay health benefits for uh, workers that are yet to be born, postal workers yet mm -hmm. to be born, yes. uh, in, 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 a, in a completely transparent way to gut the postal service. And, um, and it, I, I would say is a testament of the USPS and the workers there. Uh, that has withstood such a financial assault and more assaults like you bring up too, Jim, mm -hmm. and yet is providing still relatively inexpensive and reliable service, even though the current board of governors would love to see that all disappear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you hate to see yeah. those. Oh, oh those and, it's, and they even throw in the old saw. But it's, we're making a better world for our children. <laughs> yeah, yes. Like right, Sue, what are you going to say? Oh, I'm I'm fine. It's okay. Well, so there's going to be um, there's a place you can write. You could write to the postal service and say, and this is not just happening in Missoula. It's happening in thirty or forty different places around the country. Just right. one of one of their plans to make the postal service more e efficient, supposedly. Um, but uh, you can write comments to the to the uh, postman, you know, to the uh, board of governors, you could look them up online. Um, the other thing is that uh, at an unknown time, at an unknown place, there will be a public hearing. Um, all bets are saying, though, it's going to be during the day, it'll be announced the day before, and it'll be at some obscure uh, room in, you know, some building somewhere that no is going to be hard to find. But what's that? <laughs> With no parking, I think was the other thing. They and said. with no parking, yes, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean, you know the, you know, it's cynical, but it's funny, and because it's so predictable, and um, yeah, these guys are are the penul penultimate Louis DeJoy and the Board of Governors mm -hmm. are not all of them, but the majority of them are penultimate uh, neoliberals looking to destroy anything that government does and does well. And you're, and yeah, you're saying, that sums it up. <laughs> you're saying just along the lines of once it gets going, there's no stopping it. You were pointing out just how Joy is still in there. I mean, he that he was around when they were taking out the mailboxes and it was time to vote. Right, right, right. I know. Right. And he's like, well, he can't yeah. belong to this world, and he's still in. This is how. It is. And and that's and that's the point I'm trying to bring up is that. The, um, it's the Board of Governors that choose who's their leader. They choose DeJoy. And so it's really the Board of Governors, not Congress, not the president, um, that gets to decide who who is, uh, you know, who gets to be in that position. 
the president appoints through and with the consent of Congress. That's how that works. But uh, so far, um, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what the efforts on the Biden administration are. They they claim that they they want to stop this, but you know. Um, Call me cynical, but uh, you know I've heard lots of promises out of this administration and very little to show for it. So maybe that's another part of that. Yeah, and remember, Louis DeJoy's also the guy that says we're not going to recognize that uh, initiative to replace uh, delivery vehicles with ele electric energy. Well, you know, electric yeah, cars right. and trucks. We're going to yeah. have Oshkosh truck build gas trucks. That's it. So you know, feed, you know, again, feeding the fossil fuel folks. Yeah, mm. uh, you know, yeah. Just as we started. Just yeah. as we started. Yeah. Just okay. as we started back. To, Let me put back to the privileged few getting their own way. Go ahead, Sue. Well, just I mean, this is as far as how bureaucracies are just starting and going. There's in my circle, it seems like a lot of people are talking about Medicare. And, and how it's just totally being cherry picked by the yeah. programs. It's Absolutely, just, it's just um, it's just on steroids as far as what's going on with Medicare. Um, that makes no sense if you ever think that what insurance should be is the biggest pool possible in order to make right, it work. right, right, right. It's just crazy to cherry pick everything, and then to uh, it just kills me. But that might be another story sometime. Well, I, I think you have to go, you have to look at motive and what they're actually trying to do. And, you know, the neoliberals have been pretty successful in in their own logic. Terrible for most people, but really successful for the oligarchs and really successful for their for their really warped ideology. And um, we're seeing that in in the postal service big time. So yeah. Um, but but speak up, you know, uh, I know actually Senator Tester and Senator Daines are both uh, have expressed great concern over this as well. Um, and so, no, they, they both have. And because uh, Mon Montana is a very rural state, uh, you know, UPS uh, only will operate in big cities in Montana or big towns, right? They won't serve most of the rural population. And so if right, the postal right. service goes away, uh, most of rural delivery is going to be a thing of the past. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that happen to the transportation network. Exactly. Uh, uh, a certain train route that did that benefited 97% of the population was eliminated <laughs> because it was easier to continue using the train that, served one or two percent right right and yep and i remember their air transportation industry had a hub and had a system that served everybody when it was regulated and now it's not so i i remember as is our, oh, yeah I, I i'll just say one thing before you jump in there jim i remember flying from missoula to butte and missoula to billings that was like a common thing to do and you can't do that anymore anyway true uh, as is our theme here, we promote the cause of strong democratic unions besides the Missoula Starbucks United Workers. 
There have been efforts to do more union organizing in Western Montana among the service industry and other industries as well. That's right, Jim. We support self-organizing workers in Western Montana. There are uh, at least five worksite self-organizing drives happening here in Missoula this month, and often with the support from the Western Montana Workers Alliance. There are experienced and trained volunteers to help you get going if you are want to self-organize at your workplace. You can contact the Western Montana Workers Alliance at westernmtwa at gmail.com. That's W-E-S-T-E-R-N-M-T-W-A at gmail.com or by leaving a message at 406-924-3830. That's 406-924-3830. Well, Sue and Jim, thanks for a great show. Um, as always, it's it's always a pleasure to uh, share bad news with you guys. And thanks for listening, everyone. Please make a contribution to Missoula Community Radio and help keep all of the great programs on the air. Just go to our website at www dot 1015kfgm.org and you can make it there. Most everyone associated with Missoula Community Radio do so without pay, as certainly all of us on this show do. Um, we are volunteering our time, so please volunteer a few dollars. Thanks. Please join us every week on Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. We'll be going down so deep the river's It's coming like the tidal flood beneath the lunar sway Imperial, mysterious, and amorous rain Democracy is coming to the USA Democracy is coming to the USA.